Hello, everyone. This is Space Cafe Podcast, and I am Marcus. My guest today served under three permanent NASA administrators and during three presidential administrations. Okay, I got. I want to make sure. I want to make sure. I check. I test it. Stand by. Check. One, two, three. One, two, three. He is one of NASA's most successful science directors with James Webb, Artemis, commercial astronaut experiments on the ISS, DART, the asteroid impactor mission, Ingenuity on Mars, and at least 96 other missions under his belt. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Thomas Zubuchen to the Space Cafe podcast studio. Okay, we're rolling. We're rolling. Thomas, it's just when I got back home just two hours ago, I was listening to a a podcast by Joe Rogan, and he had the former Navy pilot Ryan Graves on the show. He was the first active duty pilot to publicly disclose regular sightings of unidentified aerial phenomena. I know the name. So the question is, is there any intel you as a scientific director of the NASA might want to share? Well, look, uh, uh, so the answer is no, not of the type that your question is implying. And, and, and I just want to tell you our policy and our practice, and that's really in all dimensions has been that the data we have, we make public. Okay. So in other words, if, uh, there was, uh, in our data set, uh, in our science data set, looking at, uh, the earth with, uh, right now, almost two dozen spacecraft 24 seven, uh, looking at the sky with many more, if there was any uh, evidence of the type uh, that uh, your question is implying, you would know, and we would yeah. uh, put the data out. Now, it is true, and I just really want to make, make absolutely clear that if somebody says, we know everything uh, in nature, and uh, frankly, there are, for sure there's no extraterrestrial intelligence, I think that statement hmm. is insane. And it's not that uh, cannot be backed up with data because that kind of uh, claim is almost equally hard to make, actually harder to make than the opposite claim, which is there is extraterrestrial intelligence here. So, so for us, uh, I'm not aware of any uh, of uh, of uh, such pieces of evidence, uh, but I am aware that there's a number of data sets that are out there that are, uh, you know, hard to explain uh, with the current understanding of uh, science. It could be that it's uh, you know, a variety of explanations that are perfectly terrestrial, uh, but we're so interested in it and we believe so much in the power of science that we actually created a group, uh, put that group together to really look at those kind of uh, events and not only look at the events, but really ask, how do we use all the tools of NASA to advance that uh, discussion and move it forward? So this is uh, proactively looked into the, these signings to just make sense of them. Absolutely. This week, I was uh, in a meeting with this group, and in that group, actually in the room, was one of the other Navy pilots uh, who actually testified to uh, Congress, who told us about her experiences, and uh, also about, um, you know, kind of the challenges of really uh, the fact that we do not have enough data to really make definitive statements. And the question is, how do we take 
uh, those kind of pieces of data that we have, again, across the entire NASA portfolio and really advance this discussion to a place that's more satisfactory than we are right now. Um, a couple of years ago, um, I had a brilliant conversation with Lisa Kaltenecker from the Carl Sagan Institute, um, an astrophysicist, and she told me that um, we will find out if there's life out there with, within the next 15 years, um, because we have the technology in place, or we will have it soon in place. Um, would you subscribe to that? So, uh, you know, I, I would have to uh, have a discussion to really discuss what she meant, but assuming that- Not intelligent life. Is, is bacterial life. Uh, yeah. If it's uh, what she's talking about is bacterial life, I really do believe in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to make major leaps. Uh, in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to get samples back from Mars, uh, basically. Uh, and then, you know, we just, uh, in fact, uh, only just a day ago, we announced that, uh, that this that, you know, uh, analysis of uh, meteorite impact, an asteroid impact on on Mars and how water came to the surface in an area we actually didn't think was that much water. Kind of that. Hmm. There's excitement about Mars. I think uh, during the next 15 years, we will have visited uh, uh, Europa with more than one mission, a uh, European one uh, and uh, one from the United States called Clipper. And uh, in there are mass spectrometers that can collect uh, complex chemicals and uh, really advance that discussion. And in the next 15 years, also we'll have added 15 years or so of analysis from the James Webb Space Telescope, as well as other telescopes that will help us uh, also from the ground, by the way, looking at atmospheres of uh, stars. We're going to look at both biological signatures, but also techno signatures of those atmospheric measurements. And so, so I have no doubt that uh, in the next 15 years, we'll be in an entirely different place. If I was a betting man, I'd probably bet my car on it also, that we will know <laughs> that it's there, but I wouldn't. You know, it's good. I mean, I would probably stop. I would not make a higher bet just because there's so much uncertainty in it uh, still. Sure. We just really uh, have been learning a lot that we will learn even more as we go. Sure. Brilliant. I already have so many questions, but before we dive into James Webb, and why don't you give us a quick lowdown on yourself, um, how you ended up uh, at NASA, your um, Swiss, born in Switzerland, how difficult was it to get to this place, to the position where you are right now? Well, it's certainly an unlikely trajectory that I have, but <laughs> it, it turns out that pretty much everybody, if I look at, if they look at their trajectory, it's always unlikely, uh, kind of to, to are where they are. At least most people that I talk to tell me about their lives in those terms. In my case, I grew up in a small village, uh, by the Lake of Thun called Heiligenschwendi. Uh, it's kind of a small village with about 500 people, more cows than, uh, than people, <laughs> uh, up there at, uh, it's at the foothills of the, of the Alps. Uh, really an exciting place in terms of geology, uh, very dark skies. Uh, and a product of public schools that, that helped me to kind of learn, uh, despite of the relative isolation, not only, uh, geographically, but also mentally, because I grew up in a very tight, uh, religious community, uh, one that well, where my father was a leadership figure mm -hmm. and it was uh, hard for us actually as a child, we didn't really read other books other than in that religious community. So mm -hmm. I, I get for public education, we came out of that eventually 
went uh, supported by uh, taxpayers in Switzerland, uh, got a PhD all the way to a doctorate in astrophysics, uh, and I had learned how to build uh, space instruments, uh, some of them on European Space Agency satellites and some of them on NASA satellites, some of them that are actually still in my portfolio now. I then left and did uh, what I thought would be a one-year uh, stay in the United States just to learn English better because, uh, <laughs> you know, we always think we should learn English better. But uh, but I certainly did when I did my PhD, and that turned out to be uh, much more than 25 years. So I've been wow. in the United States having an academic uh, trajectory and also as a postdoc, then a professor, an academic leader, where I also, after building a research group that built more space instruments and was involved very much in NASA, also build an innovation ecosystem around one of the top universities uh, in the United States, the University of Michigan. I also built startups and so forth that prepared me uh, something like six, seven years ago when the call came out. It's like, hey, do you want to be uh, the head of science at NASA? Mm -hmm. uh, first, the first question was, I remember I was not born in the U.S. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't matter. US, you're a U.S. citizen, which I, I am, of course, for many years for a variety of reasons. And, uh, so I did this uh, job, uh, the head of science at NASA, where I'm responsible for the portfolio of what is now $7.6 billion per year, uh, well over 100 uh, missions that are uh, out there, uh, uh, 120 total, something like 50 of them under development. Uh, and so so we're, of course, going through uh, both the strategic orientation of that portfolio, which in includes commercial interactions to an increasing level as we go forward, but also the uh, tactical implementation. How do we build those missions? And some of them, of course, uh, got to launch, including the James Webb Space Telescope, Mars Perseverance, Ingenuity, Parker Solar Probe, and a whole slew more. You mentioned uh, James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you had the last say uh, during the launch. How I mean, like, I was watching the evolution of the telescope very closely from remote, of course. And um, I got the usual goosebumps during like the the launch and, and whatnot. How was that for you? I mean, like having the last say in this project is an next to impossible decision to make, <laughs> at least yeah, to I, my it, mind. It's a very hard decision. And I just want to explain quickly how we do this in space. And it's exactly the right way, by the way. The last time I'm making a decision about that spacecraft is I'm turning it over. It's on the rocket already. We have a review and said, are we ready for launch? And we're turning it over to a person who has only one job, which is to launch safely. Mm -hmm. And I'm no longer in that discussion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that particular day, I turn it over the day before. I'm no longer in the discussion. And the simple reason that's the, the right way to go is we want no emotion in that discussion, wow. except emotion that relates to being successful at that rocket. Now, nonetheless, I was the highest ranking NASA official. I had practiced, uh, you know, uh, both speeches the night before, the one that <laughs> I gave that everybody forgets and the one that would not be forgettable and nobody wants to give, which is what happened if the rocket went into water. Needless to say, it was in French Guiana. It's at on top of a European rocket uh, with a European launch team. Uh, and, uh, and it was nerve wracking. It's these kind of things are, of course, what makes space and rocket science, science, uh, what it is, right? It's really hard because it kind of mm. think of it as like the ultimate one way decision, the one way door decision, right? Decisions come in two flavors. 
mm-hmm. two-way and one-way doors kind of not many of the decisions you make all day long are reversible you basically say mm-hmm. yeah i'll go for a run ah, i don't want to go for l i only go for a mile <laughs> i come back you know so so they're two-way type of decisions most decisions are like that the one day the one-way door ones are really hard and launches the ultimate one so yes it was nerve-wracking uh but uh what an amazing success of that launch team around uh uh, Ariane Spask, NAS at the European Space Agency, and then, of course, our NASA team that uh, uh, did all the rest, uh, deploying that whole thing out there. I mean, like that was a, a picture book launch. Nothing went wrong. Or is there now something you could talk about that created a little bit of friction? Well, let's, let's talk, uh, assuming this is mostly European audience, uh, you know, yeah. let's talk about playing football. Uh, you know, uh, and, and you always ask, how good is the team? And you go to practice, you go training and so forth. But there's only one way you know how good the team is, uh, which is on Saturday or on Sunday when they're on the field together. Right. So, so we had a lot of challenges on the way there, including uh, with the launch vehicle, including with the team, including the fact that we had uh, the launch processes were in French and we had an American team integrating. Uh, but <laughs> we practiced, we came through. It actually really helped me, by the way, that I spoke French and German. Mm. Uh, so kind of my Swiss background was like a magical wow. kind of contributor because I, I was speaking in French with some, mm-hmm. uh, German and other, with others, and, and, and English with the third group. And uh, and we got there. Uh, the launch, I want to tell you, was, was picture perfect. It was so good that the, that the release of the launch was so much better that the fuel that we saved in a trajectory correction basically mm-hmm. added 10 years of lifetime. So the launch was absolutely yeah. perfect. When we started deploying, we we had some issues we can talk about, but uh, needless to say, all of these issues were resolved so quickly that when we were actually done, the day we were done was exactly the day we predicted based on the launch. So we were, we were it's as, as smooth a game that you could win. So but, uh, again, it's not because it was a, an easy game. It's just because we practiced our behinds off and we were ready. Was this maybe also in a very positive sense, a stroke of luck that everything ran so smoothly? Because I could imagine, maybe you could speak to it a little in more detail, that's such a complex endeavor. There's so much that can go wrong. So it must be a little bit of stroke of luck that nothing goes wrong and everything runs smoothly. So maybe you could speak to how complex such a mission is and why it's so difficult to make it, make it happen. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, think of complexity of a space mission and kind of you think of three things. The first one is how likely is it that the launch works? And it turns with a, with an experienced uh, launch team and an experienced rocket, it's probably 95% accurate. So one in 20 or so, uh, tend to have a problem on the average, right? So, so kind of, so that's that. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I don't know. Uh, I want to tell you if your job, your life, kind of professional life depends on it, that's scary. Ariane spouse is incredibly successful. So statistically, it was actually. Uh, the likelihood of failure is significantly less uh, than 5%, just statistically, but kind of just think about it in those mm. realms then. So typically, uh, for most missions, uh, basically the launch is, I would say 80 to 70% of the risk. Once you're through the launch, you've deployed the mission, uh, is very likely to be successful. There's two mm-hmm. types of mission that have been involved in that are different, where the launch is a, 
is a low contributor, contributor to the overall risk. One of them is landing on Mars. The second one is James Webb Space Telescope. So mm-hmm. to land on Mars, uh, you know, uh, basically statistically, uh, humans that have tried to land and go in orbit around Mars have been successful about 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our team is very successful among them, but you know, we have eight successes in a row. But nonetheless, uh, if you're not scared of landing on Mars, you're not understanding what we're doing. So, so, so basically, uh, to do that, uh, the one metric that really should sit on your mind is, uh, uh, there's about 85 things that need to go perfectly for <laughs> a landing to occur. I could, 85. The parachute needs to go up, you know, wow. 85 or so. So, and, and again, uh, uh, the success and failure rate is of the order 50%, uh, which is mm. 10 times worse of the order than, uh, launching. Mm-hmm. Kind of just, uh, okay. Now take, take, uh, web based on the number of things that need to go right. It was three times more complex than landing on Mars. <laughs> so, so, so that's the way you should think about it. So 300, uh, close to 300 things needed to go perfectly. Uh, all of them and any one of them, if it didn't go for per- perfectly, we call those signal point failures. If they did mm-hmm. not go perfectly, uh, you, we don't have a mission. So, mm. so that's how I would think about it. Fascinating. Um, speak of Mars, um, Elon is out there, um, trying to, um, push the envelope when it comes to dominating the, the communication uh, sphere when it comes to colonizing Mars, making, um, us an interplanetary species, but from your NASA perspective, how realistic is it that we will land anytime soon um, with human beings on Mars? So if you ask how realistic is it that we're landing with human beings on Mars, 100% realistic. And when you say anytime soon, I need to ask, what do you mean with it? Right? <laughs> kind of, yeah, I mean, right. if, if you're asking me next year, the answer is zero like, percent likelihood. <laughs> If the answer is five years from now, there's some likelihood, mm. but it's still low. If the answer is towards the 30s or so, end of the 30s, we're getting closer to mm. the up the curve moving towards more than mm. 50%. Mm. So, so for me, for me, and, and kind of the details will depend on success we're having in the next two, three years. Mm-hmm. So if Elon is really successful with star, Starship, which we at NASA have bet on with our moon, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, strategy, if he is successful, um, uh, that, uh, likelihood just went up. So, mm-hmm. so for me, I, I am super excited about every single kind of uh, mm-hmm. player that is investing their money and their effort towards making that goal more reachable mm-hmm. because it's our goal at NASA as well. Our strategy is to go to the moon and go to Mars. Uh, that's what we want to do. There's, um, a new player or a bunch of new players on the block now when it comes to the space industry, space travel. Uh, it's not the national space programs only anymore, as we know. So what is the role of NASA these days and in the future in the wake of new space and the private players, the Elons and the Jeffs and, and uh, whatever their name is? Uh, what it always was. And that is to drive the frontier of knowledge and technology. So what we, what the best success NASA could have is to be develop some systems, a satellite that looks at the earth, which we, 
did the first uh, system self. Of course, there's also our colleagues in defense who also uh, learned how to image the earth for other reasons. But uh, but we did those uh, systems uh, kind of early on, 60 years ago. And so, and what happens today, the majority of satellites that image the earth are no longer done by us. That's great mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we can move forward because what we are buying satellites today. There's very few satellites we're building ourselves. We're buying from companies satellites mm -hmm. that, that can do that. The same is true with launch. We used to build every single launch vehicle ourselves. Uh, uh, we stopped doing that. As far as I'm in science and, and, you know, uh, in my, since I'm in the job there, we've launched 36, uh, uh, rockets with, with missions on it. And not one of them, uh, was a rocket built by an agency. You know, the asterisk mm -hmm. on it is kind of somebody needs to explain exactly how mm -hmm. they're thinking about, uh, Orion, right? It's a, mm -hmm. uh, a company, but it also has a lot of government investment, right? So, mm -hmm. so, but, but generally we're using launch that way. And so for us, what we then are supposed to do is move forward. Like what is nuclear propulsion like? Hmm. No private company would, it, would do that. That's what we should be focused on. What are new, like a helicopter on Mars? That's what we should be doing. Kind of moving ahead. So, so as we're going forward, uh, what, what's really important to us is to continually assess what are the things we can turn over. If, for example, in a given market segment, there's two or three viable players that can actually do that. I think it's, it's in the interest of the taxpayer that we turn this over to these players and we move to the frontier, which is where NASA is supposed to be. And uh, frankly, we should be proud and and excited that companies like SpaceX can exist because, and I'm quoting Elon here, mm -hmm. he said, without NASA, there is no SpaceX. And uh, what he meant is, mm. is that oh, in all the segments, we actually were either early customers or actually even provided technology mm. help. And that's exactly what we want to do. And no, we don't mm. want to compete with Elon. That's insanity. It's, it's almost like competing with your own children at the dinner table. <laughs> why, why would he do that? The goal is to create, uh, create uh, success together and create more opportunity space for everybody. Mm -hmm. what, what do you make of Elon? Do you, do you meet him on a regular basis? I've met uh, Elon multiple times. And I've uh, actually spent quite some time talking to him, and I think he's an enormously gifted, tremendously visionary uh, leader, you know, who has had enormous impacts in many areas uh, of uh, technology and uh uh, the public discourse. So he is uh, uh, really an impressive guy. And I've, you know, I've had the pleasure and the honor of meeting a number of uh, people like that as part of my career. But Elon certainly is kind of a one in a lifetime type of character. Hmm. Uh, you know, I just, uh, I did not know Steve Jobs personally. I know many people who do, uh, or my friends who, you know, tell me stories that are, make me think that that's kind of, that's the last time kind of somebody was of that magnitude, even though Elon, in many ways, I think is uh, uh, is affecting more uh, parts of industry than Steve Jobs has or mm. did. I heard that Elon is, in terms of colonizing Mars, already 50 years ahead. He's not talking about um, how to get there. He's already talking about um, how many factories to place on that planet. Is Have you heard of that story also? Oh, yeah. I, I, the last time uh, we sat in a in an office, in my office at NASA, he and I, uh, with his team, we're, we're having a discussion about uh, what types of factories need to be in Mars and which ones should be on Earth. <laughs> and we had a discussion about this. And, and that's exactly what, by the way, we have a lot of discussions like that at NASA too. 
in which we're not just focusing on the problem tomorrow, but thinking about what's next, right? So for me, uh, one of those discussions that we're having right now uh, is uh, the next generation space telescope. You know, what's mm -hmm. the nature of that space telescope? And we think of it much more like a mountaintop observatory mm -hmm. than we think of it like uh, a spacecraft. You know, mm -hmm. a mountaintop observatory is a place, uh, you know, it may be treacherous to drive up there, but you build it there and you are continually improving. You you go visit it, you you change it, you have a huge data lined out. And so that's what we think. The next generation telescope is we have not built that telescope, mm -hmm. but we're already thinking there. And the question is, how will the infrastructure look like up there, for example, uh, to get the data back? Do we need an optical communications pipeline from L2, which is a million miles, mm -hmm. a million miles or, uh, you know, uh, 1.5 million kilometers away, kind of away from the sun in the opposite direction of the sun from earth. Like, how do we build that? So that infrastructure, uh, you know, is something that we don't need in the next 10 years, probably not even 20, but mm -hmm. we should be thinking about, which is, uh, uh, you know, in the case of, uh, Elon, you know, we, perhaps we were having a discussion about 40 years from now. I don't know, but. But, but I, I absolutely, it's important to have this discussion. And I love how uh, in-depth he thinks about this. I actually think this is one of his huge strengths to really visualize the future uh, in a much more detailed fashion than many other so-called visionaries that, uh, that are walking around. What are the next big visionary steps NASA is targeting? You already mentioned new types of telescopes, nuclear propulsion. Is there anything um, equally visionary you could name? Well, I think uh, what we really need to do is instrument the planet from space. Uh, what we have is a planet that's really moving fast uh, and changing at a timescale that, frankly, uh, to many of us is scary, right? It, it, there used to be these philosophic discussions about climate change. Is the climate really changing? Have you ever mm -hmm. noticed that that discussion really doesn't happen anymore? And frankly, mm -hmm. when it happens, it, it's very hard to listen to because like, you know, like there's so much data, uh, both mm -hmm. much of it from space, by the way, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, like whether it's the sea levels or the, the mm -hmm. melting of the Antarctic, but also the abundance and intensity of weather, uh, fires, for example, at Darth of uh, water, uh, all these, uh, things are, are moving at the speed that, frankly, 10 years ago, we did not worry about many of the problems we worry mm -hmm. today. And so what that requires, and because of the fact that we are in service of our fellow humans, we need to really, both with commercial and government en entities, put instrument our planet. So information is not only con uh, collected, but is transmitted to the users, both to save and, and improve their lives, uh, you know, and, uh, from whatever perspective they want that information. So for me, that's a really big idea, right? Kind of, so it's less about a spacecraft and kind of things we're learning. It's, it's more about direct utility of space in a day to day, uh, you know, fashion. The only example where it's that direct is frankly GPS, which has mm -hmm. transformed, of course, how we, uh, how we go from A to B, how we, uh, pay uh, at the gas station or anywhere sure. else in a, in a shop. So that's another, I just really think uh, what we're doing for our planet is a huge idea. And uh, and one, frankly, that is full of problems because the moment I say that, uh, you want to ask all these other questions about some of the international part players that are 
very proud and don't want to play with others? How about uh, kind of the polluting of the low Earth orbit, which, you know, can occur if too much gets put up there? So there's a lot of challenges that relate to that. Are there any um, concrete examples what that instrumentation of the planet could look like um, in in the future? Are there any ideas out there you could already talk about? Oh, yeah. So I think the best ideas that we're working on, both in the private sector and the government sector, is fire detection. It used to take almost a day for fires to be detected and basically being implemented. And what we're really trying to do is get that down to a fraction of an hour now or mm. near real time by, by frankly, having autonomous detection. There's AIML on, a, on top of a, of a spacecraft mm. and basically sending the information down into the hand of decision makers that go out there. Because as you know, a fire that is the size of your foot or the size of your garden is a lot easier to get rid of than a fire that's the size of an acre. Uh, mm. or or bigger right and so 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 it's that recognition uh, that that does that a lot of the weather forecasting many people miss quite how massively weather forecasting has improved and how successful it is uh frankly it's hard for me to listen sometimes to people who are just not looking at the data because if you look at uh, uh for example forecasting of severe storms hurricanes and things like that uh, the accuracy of these forecasting is is a factor of two to three better than it was wow. even 10 years ago. Hmm. The accuracy of two-day forecasting in weather is now about as good as it was 10 years ago for one day. So it's it's just incredible how much better uh, things are across the board. And, and needless to say, that is not the case in every country, for example, in the developing world. So part of instrument that the, the earth is not just about the United States and Europe, it's about uh, also the countries where much of the climate impacts are being felt, such as in South America and coastal regions in Africa and so forth. Focus on the planet seems unusual uh, because NASA would usually look outward, outbound and not inbound. Is that something where you would say that this is a collective effort also by NASA to help us have a healthy tomorrow on this planet because we seem to learn every single day that if we do not act now something will severely go wrong and and there's a point of no return we're approaching rapidly um maybe unconsciously or consciously is nasa turning its eye its collective um decision making and 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 visionary power to our own planet. So uh, from the beginning, when NASA was formed, the kind of the exploration of our own planet was part of that. And and one of the things I wish I knew how to change, if I if you gave me like three wishes, what do you want to change about <laughs> NASA, is to make better known the kind of amazing work not only we've done in the past, what we're doing today, all the weather uh, forecasting satellites in all of the United States, much of a third or so of the forecast power in Europe comes from satellites that our organization at NASA is building mm -hmm. for other agencies. The entire kind of record of imaging of land use, uh, Landsat program, uh, NASA's building those spacecraft and we're building, uh, we have 24 spacecraft in orbit right now. There's another dozen or so we're going to launch in the next two or three years. And some of them have massive improvements of uh, capability. We just uh, made a, a public last week, the first observations of 
a high resolution, hyperspectral imagery. Mm-hmm. And we showed that even though that instrument was designed for a climate related purpose, how we can detect, uh, methane that's emer- kind of e- escaping from flumes and help those companies, uh, that are losing money out, out through the, 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 the you know, the, the ground, help them, uh, fix those, uh, those, uh, holes. That's very much in the interest of the company as it is for the whole, uh, earth. So it's for us. It's kind of doing these things. And then commercializing that technology, we're already working on, uh, so kind of commercial companies can uh, can do that. Uh, we've uh, we've been doing that. I think what's different is the sense of urgency. Uh, it it is much much different. So the the fact that you're saying, hey, we need to enhance our focus relative to what we did before, uh, that's a very good assertion and one that I would sign with my name. Hmm. How does that feel to you personally? Because you are at the helm of a huge collective amount of knowledge from bazillions of data sources that something is going in a direction that may not be sustainable on this planet. At the same time, seeing like the United Nations announced yesterday that we're doing nothing at the moment to mitigate that problem, problem, that issue. How does that feel to you on a personal level? Well, it's a sense of responsibility and duty we have because uh, what we know as compared to other data providers, uh, we have a much better trust ratio of our population, kind of the data we tend to put out. Uh, people basically say, hey, it's, you know, it, it, it's, we believe it. And, and of course, that's because of the principles of putting all data into public. So you actually could go check yourself mm. whether we did it right. Uh, as we're going forward, we're actually also going to put, we're transitioning in the next two, three years, all code into the public domain also, mm-hmm. because we think that that trust factor is really important because, uh, you know, the, the difference between knowledge and action is that trust in the middle. And uh, the trust, of course, is in many different domains. It's in the business domain. Uh, we're not anti-business we're for the earth, you know, kind of when we need good businesses for that, we see huge opportunities on the economic sphere, mm-hmm. uh, for, uh, for this, right? Uh, we're also not anti something, right? We, we are sure. for the future. And, sure. and, and for us, uh, you know, uh, I really, you know, I, but the way I think you make progress off and it's kind of, uh, and, and, and it's not just, uh, in this particular places, you have a sense of, uh, tremendous importance and a sense of urgency. Those are the good, uh, the good, uh, boundary conditions. There's still a lot we need to do though. Uh, I feel we have not, uh, we have not, uh, kind of been successful at a level that we need to be. And so part of it is that we do a better job internationally collaborating. Uh, mm-hmm. in the European space agency is our closest collaborator. We're very much aligned between the two of us. Uh, north of 85% of all the data on the, the planet from space, uh, you know, especially if you add uh, the commercial providers of these two, uh, kind of uh, economic spheres, you add them, uh, it's more even, uh, they're all, we have those data. So how do we, uh, make it useful? Uh, so, so, you know, uh, as a leader, I, I'm unhappy that we're not at the, at the level yet that we want to be and need to be and, uh, put everything in my power to make that happen. Is is that a political mishap? Um, is it just the political level that we could be criticizing here for not acting? 
It's my personal belief that that's always an easy answer and it's almost always the, fo- the, the wrong one. Mm. Because uh, the point is, every, especially in a democracy like ours and uh, so many of the uh, countries in Europe, uh, what's on the mind of the citizens is what will be on the mind of the politicians. And, uh, and for, for us, I think, uh, uh, yeah, the political uh, sphere, you know, part of it has to do with the dynamics of who's supporting whom for to what effect. Uh, you know, uh, during elections and otherwise, I understand that, but, but, uh, uh, it's our job, uh, to be of use to citizens, to be of use to people that we meet in Main Street, uh, and sure. in Wall Street, you know, kind of organizations can meet there and, and really, and really, uh, sh- struggle to kind of find the right solutions and also the right explanations. Uh, um, it is, uh, uh, over time, you know, I think what has happened in Adrenaline, unfortunately, is that kind of the sphere of science and the sphere of life, uh, over so many years has been separated from each other, kind of in a way that the scientists left over there feel really good about themselves, uh, but are relatively isolated, uh, mm. in, unfortunately, many of the uh, cases from the, from life and the, the, the futures of the loved ones that are in our families, in our neighborhoods. And, and so, so I think what, what is important, what is critical is to, to kind of recognize the responsibility of both. It's the, uh, on the educational side to make sure that, uh, the science methodology is in fact being taught to all, uh, but also from the science side. I mean, <laughs> it is our job to communicate. Uh, at NASA, we always say science is only done when we're communicating it. It's not <laughs> when we're, have a publication. Communication is part of the pursuit of science. And communication, as always, is relating to understanding, not to talking. To, uh, to me as a European, NASA has always been the masterful communicator in contrast to our own ESA over here in Europe. Because, I mean, like, getting the NASA sweaters at H&M in Europe, in Austria and Switzerland, that's a brilliant marketing stunt. Uh, do you think that dates back to the history of NASA and the the great achievements so far, or is there something else? Is there a different mindset that separates the two worlds? So first and foremost, I actually think ESA, the European Space Agency, has made major progress on their communication. There's many things they do really well, uh, including uh, uh, some of their human exploration people. You know, I know Doma, I know, uh, mm. uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the various German astronauts, guests and others, right? Who are, who mm. are, uh, doing just an amazing job. If you go look at their social media profiles, they have, uh, million plus followers and, mm. and people are listening to them. They're filling, uh, places. You also look at the earth science program that, uh, ESA is doing. I think it's, uh, frankly, every once in a while, if I want to annoy my team, I tell them that they did this <laughs> better than you. So, so I, I think we're very much, you know, if the Europeans can do it. <laughs> No, I mean, I think, I think, look, I mean, excellence yeah. is all about getting better. It's not yeah. where we are, right? The same is true with NASA. I don't know. I mean, you need to talk to a brand expert, right? The NASA brand is, is mm, valued so, so much. I'm sure it's mm. because of its history in part, but it's also because of its values it stands for, uh, values of daring, uh, values of, uh, of moving the, the envelope, uh, kind of doing new things constantly. And I think, uh, I'm proud to be part of that, uh, uh, but I want you to know, uh, I would never want to do it at the expense of any one of our international sure. partners. We, we want to be part and lift 
uh, each other uh, to a way that it has maximum benefit sure. for worldwide. You mentioned the Wall Street guy and the the Main Street guy. So going back to the relevance of NASA and relevance of science, um, what would you tell the Main Street guy uh, why in the wake of what is going on on Earth, um, climate change, migrations, economic downturns and whatnot, why NASA is still worthy the billions it gets from taxpayers' money? It's interesting if we look at polls and we basically ask uh, U.S. citizens why, why, why should we support NASA? The number one and number two issues are uh, supporting uh, observations of the Earth and helping the population. The second one is protecting us for impacting near Earth objects. So, mm -hmm. so, so kind of things that are threat to life. And uh, so, so they understand that's what we're doing. Mm. And and I do believe that. Uh, uh, The better we do explaining, see, what's really important is to make a good case for this argument that you just made, which is, hey, it's worth the billions, mm. is to do that in the context of value to you, Marcus, mm. value to you, and value to, mm. to you, the farmer who's in the mountains, who is, is, the temperature is, is, uh, higher. There are threats mm. of, of landslides all of a sudden. We can predict those. We have now codes. Mm. where we can predict the danger of landslides worldwide. And I want to make that available to uh, people in the mountainous areas, uh, whether it's in Switzerland, Austria, or whether it's in the Himalayas or, or uh, mm. in, in mountain ranges, again, where, where uh, these technologies are not uh, available. So for us, it's really uh, what, what we need to do is a messaging that is both focused on the values, which we already have talked about, but also is backed up on a regular basis. Uh, by, 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 uh, by actual impact in your life that you understand this is where it's coming from. So, so for me, it's really doing both kind of the top down, mm. the bottom up view. Thomas, um, on a different note, you've been leading, um, one of the most venerable science platforms on earth, um, very successfully, um, What makes a good leader? Well, um, what makes a good leader is an amazing team. What makes a good team is an amazing leader, right? Kind of, kind of great teams and great leaders come together. And, and I think the, uh, uh, the most important thing a leader can really do is to provide a vision and kind of a, uh, an environment that attracts amazingly talented individuals that then can come together And, uh, and create, uh, the impossible, uh, the way only teams can. That, of course, relates, uh, an environment, uh, to an environment in which it's okay to dare. It's okay to move because a single mistake, uh, will never, uh, be, uh, you know, uh, the end of uh, somebody. I don't, I'm not talking about stupid mistakes like driving to work drunk. <laughs> that's not what I'm talking mm. about. That's, that's more than a mistake, but, uh, Uh, you know, trying to do your best but not being successful uh, is perfectly fine in the environment that NASA is. So, so for me, uh, besides the hard work that a leader brings to the table, it's really vision and the understanding of what it takes to build and attract uh, amazing teams and team members. Rumor has it, Thomas, that you surround yourself with at least one or two people who would question 
each and every decision you make. Is that true? Uh, absolutely. I think what what we all need to be aware of is like the, no matter who we are, uh, we have weaknesses, right? And so, so basically, uh, I always uh, somebody asks, you know, sometimes in interviews, people ask me, "What are your strengths?" Right? I'm a a strong decision maker. I'm, I I work hard. I work fast. I you know, like whatever. I could tell you the strengths. That so, what are your weaknesses? The exact opposite. The exact same thing at different at different situations. For example. Sometimes I make decisions too quickly mm -hmm. because I, I do not have the patience to wait, you know? And, and so what, what I noticed in my life, it's kind of the things that I've been most successful at are organizations and teams in which I had a strong voice that said no to me. And so once you figure that out, you go hire that voice, right? So I, I have a person <laughs> in my team. It's like, your job is to say no to me. So, wow. so it's like, you know, and, uh, and frankly, Uh, over time, what that does, it actually creates an environment where everybody can t say no to me. Now, let make no mistake. At the end, when we're done with the discussion, I'm making the, the decision and we're done. And uh, <laughs> kind of it's a single decision and, you know, we're, we're done. But, uh, but on that process there in which we're giving this, the space to try to find the best decision, God, we need to say no to each other. Uh, and frankly, I spent the whole morning today, uh, kind of trying to make a personnel decision in which we were in a room and we, uh, we talked about, uh, using a process that social scientists figured out. It's not some kind of Thomas process. I'm using processes that are best in class. Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning economist has described how you should do that to reduce implicit bias. So it's really important to say no to each other. And we did it all morning. So, so for me, that's, I need that and I want to create that environment because I don't want to work on my best ideas. I don't want to work on the best ideas that we can come up with. I don't want to do the best job I can do. I want to do the best job we can do as a team because we can be almost perfect. It's, it's incredible how good we can be as a team. I could never do that by myself. Well, what's, is there, a, is there like a perfect team size you, you'd recommend having? <laughs> Too many people, I guess, are an issue. To view, a few people are an issue. So, is there a perfect team size? I think it really depends on what you want to do. Kind of when you when you want to make uh, complex decisions with huge, uh, huge uh, uh, kind of consequences. Uh, you know, what, what's usually a good idea is a multi layered decision process, mm -hmm. and uh, using that, you can include other voices. Right? For example, you look through a decision through only the eyes of technology. Only the eyes through financial and kind of programmatic things, schedule costs, mm -hmm. only the eyes through policy. Then you bring it together and, and kind of the, the rooms that, uh, I have to, I've observed that have the best kind of flow and kind of create the best environments are rooms where we can all see each other. So that's usually mm -hmm. uh, the environment. Uh, it's very rare that it's more than a hundred. It's mm -hmm. very rare that it's less than five. Mm -hmm. But there are places where we have to go flirt with uh, with these boundaries. Uh, I tend to kind of the on the average, uh, you know, uh, I probably in the rooms where most of the hardest decisions are made, uh, tend to sit on the, of the order fifty, and that includes some of the people are being trained, mm -hmm. so they're there and they only provide input through somebody else because, mm -hmm. it's and it's not because we want to stifle them; it's because. I don't want to have a discussion in which every, you know, we, everybody feels they need to be heard because see, once you're a part of the core, you are 
absolutely there is no choice you have to speak if you're in my mm. team so so you're <laughs> I, if you're not speaking you will be asked and and mm. and you need to know what you i mean i i'll go after your opinion right kind of, mm. so i needed to be prepared uh, by the way i never go to a meeting where the data that we're discussing is not being prepared if you're not able to put all the documentation in there at the timeline before the meeting sometimes it's a week before depending mm -hmm. on how the decision is 24 hours before uh you automatically lose your meeting slot you're done <laughs> so so uh, and, and the, the single reason for that is we want to spend the time mm. meaningfully improving the decision not mm. learning about the decision yeah if the learning can be done on our own clock yeah I'd love to learn a little more about um, meeting um, processes and, and and your way of conducting meetings. So, a meeting, what is how how does that work for you? An ideal meeting, does it have an agenda? Does it need an outcome? How do you go through a meeting? So, uh, the, the, it depends a little bit what the meeting is, right? But the, but there's meetings that are focused on decisions. Let's just talk about those. Uh, because that's mm -hmm. the, the, the theme that we have had here. So they're not about update meetings. They're not about getting to know each other, uh, meetings, but, uh, but they are, uh, uh, almost none of them I chair. It's really mm -hmm. rare that I chair a meeting. And, and the single reason for that is I want to be a contributor. I don't mm -hmm. want to be a chair and a contributor because that, that again, remember, I, I already told you, I tend to take over too much. Hmm. So I want a chair again. It's one of those no sayers to me hmm. who is basically chairing and keeping us on track. It has a clear agenda, has a clear set of uh, roles, clear uh, anticipation of what, what needs to be prepared. And it's clear from the beginning when we go in what the goal is of the meeting that is stated up front at the first couple minutes. Today we're deciding this. Right. And then, uh, we go into it, uh, close to a third of the time in an ideal meeting is discussion time. Uh, perhaps even half the time. So it's not, uh, we're not filling the stuff with more details. The question is, that's why we need the preparation. We need to figure out what the 10 things are we need to discuss, not the thousand we could discuss. And then so we, we, we talk about this and, uh, then we spend a lot of time really going after things we agree. And peeling out things we disagree and then running them against each other. Mm -hmm. And so, so at the end, each one of the key contributors is being asked specifically about the recommendation in the matter. And, uh, it's really rare that we have 100% agreement, by mm -hmm. the way. I want you to know that that's not the goal. Mm -hmm. The goal is not to have 100% agreement. The goal is to have a full understanding of the decision. And understand what all the lying issues affect the decision we may not have thought about first, which is why we're creating that sense of tension. Mm -hmm. And at the end, uh, if it's going well, I can make a decision. I will never make a decision ex uh, that, uh, except if I have to, that sometimes decision speed, it's actually better. And remember, the kind of decisions we make, many of them are one way door decisions. The two way doors, frankly, they're a lot faster mm -hmm. because we can take more risks. Let's just go, frankly. They're more about delegation because I actually don't want to be in these decisions. I'm not interested because I don't, it's not because I, they're great things, but I don't want to spend too much effort on things that are not that important, right? It's really the ones mm -hmm. where we're betting the agency or that that's the, the, the decision process that I outlined. How, how do you keep that attention 
during a meeting because very often meetings just drift off often in in chit chat discussion about insignificant things so is there is there a way to keep that ball in the air so what's really important to me is uh, I'm slightly ADHD or perhaps even a lot. <laughs> so what actually has to happen is that there's no uh, electronics in the room for me. I'm uh, focusing entirely on it. Uh, kind of, I mean, you don't have to have a mouth about me, but I have almost a visual memory for many things. So, so I actually uh, kind of really memorize what I'm seeing and then connect it in my mind. So, so I need that. Uh, uh, if we need a break, we take a break. So we're making an assessment. We usually plan breaks because we want to mm -hmm. make sure that people are fresh. And again, uh, if you're in a room and if you're not speaking, uh, you will be called upon with very mm -hmm. high degree of, uh, of certainty. So, so that's what, that's what we're doing. By the way, an innovation meeting mm -hmm. is really different. I mm -hmm. want you to know that of, especially when we're adding ideas, they're very different than uh, kind of a decision meeting that relates to a launch or a key engineering decision. That is, as we said, a one-way door. That's brilliant. Thanks for for uh, sharing that insight. Because um, I think most of us have a lot to learn from that um, and can uh, learn a lot. Um, on a completely different note, um, do you still speak with your Russian science um, colleagues, perhaps also friends? Uh, the a situation that happened in Russia and Ukraine is one that's heartbreaking to me. Uh, I, uh, as part of my doctorate uh, in Switzerland, I actually spent some time in Moscow, and I have dear friends in Russia. And I would mm. some of these people, I would uh, I would trust them with my children. Uh, hmm. that, that was always the test for me. Hmm. Do I would I? turn over my children for 20, you know, 24 hours and without a worry. And they're at that level. They're fully wow. trustworthy. And uh, because of the actions of their government, because of the action of, uh, of their military and so forth, uh, the, the it had necessitated kind of a separation from some of the collaborations that are there. Uh, hmm. My heart is broken about this. It's uh, sure. the world is is less stable, is more scary as a result of it. So the short and the long is we're not speaking a lot together and hmm. and it's for the obvious reason. Sure. Do you think um, collaborations are coming back between the two superpowers? Well, I think it depends what, what's going to happen with Russia. I think uh, right now Russia is an aggressor in Europe uh, in a situation that, uh, you know, the United States, the president, the administration, both parties have condemned. And so, so the same is true with Europeans. And so, uh, so a lot will happen in the future. I sure hope and I believe that science can be back to being that platform in which we can find each other. We have amazing relationships between, uh, the different countries and the different continents. And, uh, and, uh, many of us can't wait to go to an environment mm. in which that is again there because we actually have uh, recognized that what we're doing right now is not acceptable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, let's hope for the best, seriously, uh, each and every one of us. It's, it's for science and it's for humanity. I think this is what matters. Absolutely. Um, uh, Thomas, um, we've been speaking so much about the visionary background, visionary mindset behind NASA and, and its foundation. Um, so let's think forward, um, towards while we're moving towards the end of our uh, conversation, um, is SLS, 
in the wake of all of this, what we discussed today, is this a leftover from an older period, maybe from the 20th century? Look, I mean, at this moment in time, there is no large launch system that has been proven. I mean, if I was, I mean, I'm not in charge of SLS. It's a knowing a human exploration system. Mm -hmm. I would double down on an SLS right now, but I would set myself uh, kind of times when we review what is, how is the ecosystem evolving? And if there's two to three contractors that can do that, and mm. frankly, we, you know, we will, you know, and we have in the past kind of moved our uh, strategic framework in a different direction. Uh, what we, mm. uh, what we have done already with SLS is created a commercial model in which kind of we can actually buy SLS in a commercial market. And of course, the viability of that market and uh, in the context of, of other entrants into that market needs to be proven. But, but uh, at this moment in time, uh, SLS is a necessity because it's an absence of other of other capabilities uh, that, that why, is there. Ten years but, from now, it may be very different. But why is that? Why not um, hand the four billion per launch um, to Elon and, and let Elon develop uh, that huge launch system further? I think first of all that uh, I you know I think Elon is the most vocal about this. And he basically mm. he's talking about the fact that. Core innovation, whether it's in the electro electrified car market or in the rocket market, is not primarily enabled by money, but by culture and by the willingness of a group of people to attack the status quo. And you know, the last thing you want to do, I was an investor and I was kind of in an ecosystem. Uh, what I learned is that uh, that uh, it's really important to let the parts of the ecosystem work at their best. So we are, as we said, already investing in Elon's uh, mm. systems. Uh, our human uh, landing system on, mm. on the moon is one where we're counting on them, where we're already putting uh, money in it. Uh, but mm. it's really important to kind of look at the trajectory. You know, it's it, the hesitation sometimes. It's been, you know, especially, sorry, it's another sound. I don't know why it makes that. But what the danger is sometimes in our uh, lives is that we look at the history only with a myopic view of today. Mm. And I, I think it's really important to recognize that the successes we've had in the United States in the launch market, not many people predict it. I, I want you to know that. I mean, I, uh, it affected my life because I was like, I was actually one of the early ones who said, hey, they have a real good chance. And, and many, uh, many kind of traditional, uh, members of the community did not really believe that. So, so, Mm. I think uh, the process is playing itself out, uh, and I, I really do believe, uh, you know, I will be there again at the next uh, SLS launch because the magnificence of the technology that is there and the, the team that came together, I wish a block just as I do for Elon uh, once he gets ready to get his uh, the Starship orbital. I think that's another major step forward, mm. and, and I sure hope that Jeff Bezos with Blue is right behind him and Relativity and the other companies that mm. are working on it are doing right. the same. And the same is true with Europe because we're all better off if we have kind of competition in that market so we can go buy the services. Sure. And still, considering all we're talking about, it is still merely 5% of what is out there that we know. And 95% we have no knowledge of. Are we... Uh, are we seeing a paradigm shift anytime soon that will will alleviate us a little closer to six percent, seven percent, ten percent? 
Is there anything on the horizon? So I think we're doing our best, right, to kind of really peel away, kind of move back that mm. that boundary that separates both uh, the known from the unknown, but also stuff we know how to do from stuff we have no idea what to do. And, uh, you know, as we go forward, I think uh, uh, I focus less on the ratio. Uh, mm. I focus more on really uh, what the op both where we are, what, how we deploy those tools to the benefit mm. of humanity, but also being motivated to attack that boundary. Frankly, you know, you have to decide what your kind of outlook is on life. Do you want to be a fish in an aquarium that you know everything, <laughs> you know, oh, it goes from there to there, and mm. I know this rock and I know this sports because I'm here, or do you want to be a, a fish in the ocean? Mm. And I, I'm an ocean animal. I don't know about you. Like, I, you need to decide, are you comfortable knowing that you will never see the whole ocean? Mm. Perhaps not even your whole family will ever see the whole ocean because it's so magnificent. I love the ocean. I love the yes. universe. I love the unknown because I know I'm a small part of something magnificent. Yes. And, uh, and uh, so are we all together. And we have the opportunities using our tools that we develop to really learn more about that magnificent whole, which is in the, the metaphor of the fish, the ocean, or in our metaphor, what is knowable, the universe, hmm. uh, sets of technologies that, can, that we can develop. Who will come up with the new ideas that we, will, that we so desperately need? Is it another guy from a patent office or is it a supercomputer, artificial intelligence? Even if it's artificial intelligence, it's by run by somebody who's uh, less likely to be successful than kind of the, the majority of them. That's what we see. The biggest, the biggest leaps so often come from people with outside views, which is why I'm such a champion for uh, putting diverse viewpoints in the room and also diverse backgrounds and diverse kind of people, women, men, you know, uh, people with different gender orientations, people with different backgrounds, different colors, different upbringing, some of them with top schools in, a, in their country, some of them with that went through apprenticeships, kind of to community college, we would say here, and uh, bring them into the room because together they could do more and you can never know. Of course, uh, diversity also means that we also want the traditional people in the room because it does not help to create that us versus them uh, community. That's not useful. Hmm. Thomas, I'm I'm a child of the 70s, and I grew up glued to the words of Carl Sagan. And if I remember correct, back in the day, we were extremely visionary. Anything was possible um, when it comes to space travel and, and space visions and whatnot. So is there anything left of this attitude has anyone ever considered building a true star trek type spaceship of course let's not talk about the, the thruster technology because that 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 could be an issue but i mean like seriously we have such a small space station up there so why why is there not a bigger thing up there that we we could travel around with the technology i could imagine would be in reach what do you think Well, I do believe that there are people, and we talked about some of them by name, and there's also some others also within some of our space agencies that are keeping 
pushing the envelope, I would just argue that the James Webb Space Telescope is one of those aspirational machines we just talked about. Mm. It's very mm. different. We've never seen one like it that, you know, it's a stuff of dreams. Mm. And, uh, you know, I don't want to say the space station, you know, if you just look at the technologies that are there, there's nothing wrong with the space station. I mm. really love that we did it. It's just important to recognize that our job is to learn more. That's why mm. we need to move. So it's mm. not because... Like, so what's really hard about innovation sometimes is like, uh, we think of innovation as saying no to something, you know, kind of, and by the way, that is often what happens, but that's almost never the motivation. It's saying yes to something else, kind of being mm. pulled in the direction of the future. And, and you know, like Jack Dorsey, you know, founder of Twitter once yeah. told me, it's like the future is already here today. We just need to scale it. Mm. So for me, you know, the encouragement to the entire audience is to not only kind of develop the future themselves, but what's actually just as important and perhaps more important is to recognize where the future happens right now and be part of scaling it. Because uh, that future that is scaling is, is really what creates the kind of new normal in the future that today looks like the stuff out of a fantasy movie. What's the one project that excites you the most when it comes to space travel, space technologies? Well, the one thing I would like to work on, and I haven't, uh, is really figure out how to visit the next star. Huh. <laughs> so for me, for me, in the next 10, 20 years, besides going to Mars, I would like mm. us, humanity to go learn how to visit the next star. And it's going to take more than decades. But, yes. but you know, like if you look at it, kind of the, the right way to look at this is kind of on a log, uh, a log axis, right? Kind of so 10 times the sun earth distance is the same distance away as 100. Mm. It's the same distance away from 100 as 2000 to 10,000 and so forth. So we're, mm. we have gone in my lifetime from one to a hundred, mm -hmm. right? Kind of with the Voyager spacecraft. Mm. Uh, what I'd really like to do is start something that goes from a hundred to 10,000, hmm. uh, and kind of really learn how to do that because the next one after that is the next stars. Sure. So, so for me that, uh, I'd like to work on that. I, I, we, we, you know, we have a lot of things that we did. We, we just broke all the records going to the sun, which yeah. is one thing that I wanted to work on also. And we launched that. It's called the Parker Solar Bro. We named it after. Eugene Parker, when he was still alive, kind of that visionary mission. Mm. But I want to go the other direction. But that's is, one thing is, I'd like to do. We're not working on. Is someone so you okay? I was just going to ask: Is someone working in that field? Uh, yeah. So we have studies. We're uh, looking at it. Uh, we have not made a decision to go for it, and we're trying to figure out kind of what the right technology the technologies are to actually get to 10,000. Because otherwise, if it's just to 1,000, I'm not sure why we would do it. Right? Kind of, it needs to, it needs to, or if it's going to 1,000, it needs to be really fast, right? Because uh, it's, otherwise we're not leaping, right? Again, you need to, to achieve big things. You need to kind of make 10x leaps. That's the right way to think. And so, so for me, that's, that's, uh, you know, I sure hope, uh, uh, in my lifetime, we're starting that project huh. and, and making real progress. Uh, there's many others, but that's the one we're not sure, working on enough, in my opinion. Please excuse um, that stupid, if it's a stupid question, but is warp technology, could that ever be a thing or will that ever always be um, confined to science fiction? 
I really don't know is the short answer. Uh, they, uh, theoretically, uh, it has been described as as a potential possibility. It would violate uh, some of the theories that were that we're trusting and that are really successful in in the large scale structure of the universe. But it wouldn't be the first time when uh, very successful theories in other domains kind of break down. So so it's definitely possible. Uh, but at this moment in time, we just really haven't. Uh, haven't uh, observed it yet or wouldn't even know how to use it. Uh, it would be particularly useful if there was uh, such an entrance into mm -hmm. such a drive that was relatively nearby, because otherwise probably we wouldn't know that it exists. Anyway, mm -hmm. I won't, don't want it too close, <laughs> but, 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 but uh, nearby enough so we can actually utilize it. But uh, the short answer is I don't know, but uh, why would I say no in, in, that, sure. in the presence of ignorance? Sure. Thomas, um, you're coming close to the end of your directorate. Um, what up next? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is uh, spend some time off. I bought a season ticket in a ski resort. So I want to go spend some time on the, on the <laughs> snow. It's my favorite uh, sport, just being outdoors and uh, get off uh, away from things. Uh, I love that. Uh, but but the short and the long is I, I actually haven't really thought a lot about it. Uh, the way I tend to live my life, uh, and I've done it previously, I just, I run for the cliff in a given job. I, I do my absolute best until the last day, then I take a break and figure out what's next. And uh, surely what I will look for is something that has, is very purposeful and purpose-driven. It's something that's exciting, uh, uh, both uh, through the kind of lens of science, but also the lens of innovation and the lens of humanity, what's good for humanity. Those are the kind of things. I'm going to look for. And so, uh, so we'll see uh, what that is. Uh, I don't know at this moment in time. I'm not telling anybody because of other reasons that I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just really don't know. Sure. Thomas, um, we are setting up a Spotify playlist uh, for this podcast. And that Spotify playlist should accompany all the space future space travelers. Maybe also you when you're going to Alpha Centauri at some point. It's going to be a very long and boring ride. What is the one tune you want to bring with you on that Spotify playlist? Because I will really introduce it to the, to the playlist. All right. Lose Yourself by Eminem. Lose yourself. I am an, and it's kind of a, an unusual guy for a Why guy my age. Uh, but it's, it's a, all a song about going for it. Mm. It's all a song about that moment that every one person knows when they're standing there and now it matters and going for it, pushing themselves for the benefit of, you know, broadening the experience, uh, mm. pushing themselves to actually try something that's hard. Something mm. that is not absolutely clear whether uh, it it will happen. And in the case of Eminem, of course, it's about uh, the the story in the movie that is there. Uh, I have a close connection to it because I actually know the people who recorded uh, the music also and kind of their own story. And uh, but but for me, I've I've been very inspired by it. There's others, but that would be hmm. that would be it. If I had two, three others, I certainly have other ideas. There's a brilliant movie about Eminem. I, I forgot the name, but I, I really like like the, the character. Um, it's eight anyways, mile. yeah, Eight Mile, totally. Yeah, yep. thank so you. So it's the song. It's the it's the song. The title song of of uh, Eight Mile, uh, which is uh, "Lose Yourself." That's what it is. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. 
Um, last question. This is the Space Cafe podcast. It's a coffee place. Um, as a, um, a former, oh, no, you're never a former Swiss. As a Swiss uh, person, um, you may still love to go to coffee places and now and then have an espresso to energize your body. Um, why don't you share now an espresso for the mind with me and the audience? Something that inspires, something that energizes the audience. Um, you can pick whatever kind of topic you want to pick. Uh, how long do you want me to talk about that? Huh? Just one minute. That's up to you. You pick whatever time you want to pick. If I want to be inspired, and I am each and every day, I think of the words by Carl Sagan about exploring the universe where he says, I'm at the shore of the cosmic ocean. And what we've done so far, if we've waded in to the water, into that cosmic ocean, only knee deep or so, but the water is really inviting. And so kind of as I look at uh, both what has happened in space so far, but also what we're doing right now, uh, we see that inviting cosmic ocean away of it, the shore of it, just the earth itself, uh, our own home, the home where everybody lives uh, that we love, our entire history is here. Most of our future is here as well. And uh, what we can do as we go forward is we can actually affect not only how that shore area is, the health of that, using the tools that we're learning as we're going out there. But equally importantly, we can also learn more, way deeper into that cosmic ocean and learn about the amazing beauty of nature, which is so much more beautiful, so much more amazing than any of us ever believed. And we get surprised each and every day as we wait deeper. Where are you at at the moment? Ankle deep, knee deep? I'm probably knee deep and I'd like <laughs> to really go deeper. <laughs> Thomas Turbuchen, um, thank you so much for taking the time. That was extremely inspiring. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for stopping by today. Hey, we have something for you today. 20 hand-signed Space Watch Global t-shirts. We would just ask you to leave us a rating and a review of the Space Cafe podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. First come, first serve. Drop me a note and we'll ship you a tea. Thanks for listening in. See you soon. Bye-bye.